0: This episode is sponsored by SEAT, in support of Campaign Against Living Miserably Mental Health Charity. Many of you will know SEAT as one of the leading, fastest growing car manufacturers in Europe. But what you may not know is that during the pandemic in 2020, SEAT donated a significant sum to Calm that was used to provide additional staff for Calm's helpline, which is operated by trained mental health professionals and provides support to those struggling with their mental well-being. During the pandemic, 9 in 10 people turned to their cars and went for a drive to manage their mental health. With this knowledge, SEAT took the initiative to install a mental health SOS sticker in the vanity mirror of every SEAT car, which included a QR code directing the user to CALM's website for helpful tips on ways to manage your mental health. The number for CALM's helpline is also there for those who needed it. Throughout 2020, all senior management at SEAT were also given mental health first aid training ensuring they can support anyone who contacts them who's struggling. These are huge steps forward that all companies, big and small, can take inspiration from. Like Take Flight, Sayat has supported CALM since 2018, so it's such a pleasure for all three of us to be able to collaborate this year for Mental Health Awareness Week. As part of this campaign, we created some special episodes for this podcast, as well as creating educational videos on practices that any of us can use to boost our mood and manage our mental health. To view these videos or learn more about the practices or anything Sayat Calm and I are creating, follow at Seat UK at SeatUK underscore, underscore media at CalmZone and follow me at MarkWhittle underscore TF on your social media channel of choice. Our relationship with our mental health is a lifelong journey. Where are you on yours?
1: The, the first time I saw them lift off the frontal lobe mm-hmm. and then open up the sheath and you can see this beautiful glistening I mean, it's like artwork with little serpentine arteries and vessels. I was like, is that even possible? It's the first time I saw a surgery where I was like, is that even possible? Meaning, is the patient going to make it after you do this?
0: Welcome to Take Flight with me, Mark Whittle. This is season 12 and the 113th episode I've released in nearly four years. And season 12 is our life lessons season. Because every soul that travels this planet has a unique journey. And each individual at some stage in their life will have a major moment where they learn lessons that can transform them. Of course, for some, these moments are bigger than others. And this season of Take Flight is all about speaking with those who have had multiple major moments in their life in order to get to where they are. And hearing these stories is our chance to learn from their experiences. The idea for this series of episodes is also to learn from those who have walked a path that we will never walk and therefore learn lessons that perhaps we could never have learned ourselves. And oh my God, has this guest walked a unique path. Our guest for episode 113 of Take Flight is Dr. Rahul Jundial. Rahul is an American brain surgeon and neuroscientist based at the City of Hope Research Center and Hospital in Los Angeles. He is a professor with expertise in the surgical treatment of cancer, specifically of the nervous system. After completing his neurosurgical training and doctorate at the University of California, he was accepted into a fellowship at Stanford University and subsequently recruited as a faculty at Harvard. Dr. Jun Diao is the world leader in the study and the improvement of brain function. He has performed thousands of procedures to resect cancer from people's brains, as well as other trauma operations. He's also diagnosed thousands of people with cancer and prolonged many of his patients' lives through his life-changing surgery. Through these many journeys, he's been exposed to the human being's highest highs and our lowest lows, and his new book, Life on a Knife's Edge, details all this. It is truly one of the best books I've read, harrowing in parts, heartbreaking but deeply moving too. This episode was special. We talk about what Rahul has learned observing humans facing death, and the journey he has undertaken to understand cancer and ideally find a cure. We also discuss the similarities Snoop Dogg, Nipsey Hussle and Harry Potter have in common with Rahul He was so generous with his time We spoke for nearly two hours And believe it or not, I still have questions for him But because of the length of this conversation We've split the episode into two parts To be more easily digestible Part two will drop on the Wednesday morning After part one is released Subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice To hear the other life lessons in this season first But it's my honour to share the following story Ladies and gentlemen Welcome to Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon with Doctor Rahul Jindal, thanks for listening.
1: You know, rap and art has an, an arbiter, a judge, um, but in surgery, um, we 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 measure who has the best uh, resection rates mm-hmm. and and who has the lowest complication rates.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, you get like you know goals and and you know, fouls and rebounds and stuff like that. There are metrics in surgery, um, that, um, don't require a judge, you know, mm-hmm. the scan tells it, the patient's, uh, disability or lack of it tells it. So I, I love, I love that part about surgery and being a yeah. surgeon. Yeah. I
0: bet. I bet. And, and thank you, by the way, you're making this very easy for me. Cause you're bringing me back to what I want to talk about, which is the surgery aspect. I've been dying to talk about the performance side of, of surgery and being a brain surgeon. Um, before I do I just want to thank you again I'm absolutely I'm loving this conversation so much I, there, there there are certain ones and I love all the conversations I have for the podcast but there are certain ones when I just I feel it deeply and I'm I'm yeah. getting that today so I'm enjoying it perfect man Um, I mean look a really a really obvious first one to, to open up with with regards to performance but just what is it like performing brain surgery I could only imagine for myself when we spoke about resilience and those experiences building up that resilience but if I was to step into that world you know i i would probably be like a deer in the headlights, so yeah what 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 is that like even to to do that? you know the drapes are up and everything else our first
1: time I mean, I had seen you know medical school, the belly, and different things and um the first time I saw them doing, you know maybe the surgery your your mom has had so respectfully, but the first time I saw them lift off the frontal lobe mm-hmm. and then open up the sheath and you can see this beautiful glistening. I mean, it's like artwork with little serpentine arteries um, and vessels. I was like, whoa, is that, are, is that even possible? It's the first time I saw a surgery where I was like, is that even possible? Meaning, is the patient going to make it after you do this? Mm. I was like, whoa. And then there was a process of understanding of this and that and then there was the first time I operated alone and it was like oh my i mean it's just a different thing not to have somebody in the room with you man it just oh my gosh it was um i mean just just a world of emotions you know and um what what, do I know what I'm doing? If I get into trouble here, how will I get out? What if, what about this maneuver? What if, what if he doesn't do well? Or what if she doesn't do well? It's my first, it's my first surgery. If it doesn't go well, then I'll lose my career. I mean, a lot of things, selfish things, generous things, complicated things. Um, But man, it was a thrill to have, it was a thrill to have that, the, to have the wheel and have nobody else in the car with you on that racetrack. I mean, it's just, it's meditative because at that point, you're not thinking about, all the stuff that was bugging you yesterday or before you just, you are truly in that moment. To me, that's mindfulness. That's meditation. uh, An exquisite skill or a demanding situation that requires my full attention. Um, And so that, that was performance. Then the third thing, you know, the first time was like, Whoo, can this be done? Second time is I've got the wheel. And then as I've gotten older, um, it's about um, not losing anybody on the operating table. So in surgery, you take on big cases and dangerous surgery. Sometimes things go wrong. And it's not just sutures and drill. But like, so, so just, just to interject, cutting the skin takes six seconds, but sometimes the operation takes six hours. Mm-hmm. What's going on those next hours and minutes that's the work you can't understand it unless you've done it you know um but then i got to the point where with the bigger cases what i wanted to be good at was not just the finesse and the flow of the operation but if and actually if you do enough complex cases when that captain sully moment hits um am i good then performance under pressure Everything's at stake, not my life so not not the same, but I'm into it just as bad as la- as like my life is online you know mm-hmm. it's a human it's a person person I talk to person I met person's family I know so I'm in it and so then that crisis man okay I've got a new enemy right here would how do I how do I land this 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 That's where I, the last, you know, those are the three steps of performance as a surgeon I've gone through. And the last one is the, is the most personal because what do you do when on your laminated pilot sheet or your surgery textbook steps that What you're facing doesn't, hasn't existed before. There is no written solution. You can't pick, you can't call a friend, you know, what should I do? And it has to be conceived and delivered in that moment, physically, physical. Like If I do this, if I go underneath here, what's on that side, I'm going to pull pressure for a second, catch my breath, catch my breath, catch my breath, come back at it. You know, there's, that's a personal private moment. Um, And that's – those moments, there are two types of surgeons who freak out and they don't – they freak out and they bail out and the patient doesn't do well. Those are the ones that die in the operating table. Can you imagine a cold body in a room with all these lights on and they were warm when they came in and the family's waiting outside? And That's the conversation I never want to have. And then there are people who – Freak out, but don't freak out. I mean, don't, it's not like you're like, no, let's see. It's not, it's not lackadaisical or casual, but it's, it's lit, but focused. It's lit, but knowing your own emotional regulation about the things that trip you up. Don't think about how this can appear. Don't think about the family outside. Get this, get this, get this, get this, get this. You know, there's a whole thing I go in through my mind that I know some of my colleagues, they got their own different thing. And I can't teach that. So either you, you, and it's not something you are. So uh, you can't know whether you have that. <laughs> like they, they, you go into surgery without even see people seeing if you can like use the pen with your left hand or how you, you know, there's no technical assessment for taking medical students to surgery. You just take everybody in and then you teach them and you assume you're going to teach them all the world's most exquisite technical performance. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to take everybody into race car driving. Oh, you're not good at it. So there's no filter for that. And then, mm-hmm. And there's especially no filter for how you perform under pressure. So surgeons, we select ourselves towards that. There are the surgeons that want to take the game winning shot, Jordan. There are the ones that say, I'm good, happy being on the team. Right? Pippin. So the why would you select yourself toward that? Because it, it teaches you something about yourself. You know, I mean, being able to be in that moment and um get through a difficult situation in an operating room and knowing you're taking on a new challenge that others haven't across the country, across the world, you know, it's a, it's a life lesson to yourself that moment inside alone under the lights with the headlight on your head and the loops and this patient opened up, you know, that's to me, that's what surgery can offer for the surgeon. And so my, my ambition to be the best at something matches up perfectly with the patient wanting to meet wanting me to be the best, mm-hmm. so to me that's a healthy competition me against other surgeons, me against the cancer that's a healthy competition with rules and referees and that's where a pla- that's the place where I've been able to deliver my uh my intensity for what I hope has been um, you know for what I hope has been for good it's,
0: it's so refreshing to hear because I think sport, and we use the sporting analogy a lot because every you know we all Me love too. sport, we played it when we grew up, and it is um you know glamorized on the TV. It is, there's no doubt about it. And so it should be because it's amazing and it provides entertainment and escapism and all these other things and inspiration. But people who go in for surgery probably due to fear or other reasons don't give too much consideration about what goes on in hospitals or what mm-hmm. goes on in the operating room mm-hmm. because it's scary. Right. But if we think about it, the way you've explained there, it is a performance like anything else. Oh, and, yeah. and you're theater. driven. theater, Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, we call it theater because back in the day it was, and just a context as well. When I left football or soccer, my first job away from sport was I worked for Ethicon. So I sold sutures and staple equipment to, into general surgery um, in London. So, uh, so that was my so I, I've experienced stepping into theatre, watching general surgeons perform colorectal surgery, bariatric surgery, mm-hmm. various things like that. So, and that was trauma in itself, by the way, because I had yeah. to all that resilience to see that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the way you explain it, particularly around brain surgery, there's nothing else you can think about. There's nothing else you can you can be distracted by because it is um, the stakes are so high. I guess.
1: Yeah, and I would say not not there are. There are brain operations that are not deadly or dangerous. And there are so I would say dangerous surgery, challenging surgery that the patient has chosen to come to you for. You're not just saying, hey, I'm going to have a dangerous operation. No, it's not like that. They come to you with a problem that is dangerous to tackle. And they go to different centers. They go to New York. They go to D.C. They come to you. And say, Man, you got a, you got a bomb butt to go off inside you. They're coming to me to ask me to take that bomb out of their head. That's why it's dangerous, because of the disease they have. It's not like the surgeon's dangerous or the hospital's dangerous. You're coming to me with a very complicated problem, and and the risk can never get to zero. But my hope is in my hands, if in New York or in London it's, 7% 7% chance of death or 7% chance of uh, you know injury that I I hope that in my my track record shows that it's only 5 or 6. Hmm. That's winning, right? It can hmm. never get to 0. And uh there are patients who look for specialized cancer surgeons and surgeons throughout the world and that's uh that's the group I I, I emulated. That's the group I hope I have earned a small place in. And, um, I just want people to know that, that, uh, not all surgeons, right? Because there are, most of it is, is formulaic in its approach, but the elite surgeons are no different than elite athletes. And I got a feeling we chase it for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that if I'm better at this, I'm driven at this, I'm competitive at this. Like my patient's doing better than patients in other, in other hospitals. I'm at peace with that too, that that ambition is mine, mm-hmm. that that's my selfish ambition to be the best at something. And I would say that's the surgeon you want, mm-hmm. even if it's not me. That's the surgeon you want, who's so jacked up to be the best inside you, fixing you, doing it with the most finesse, the fewest steps, least likely to get injured in their hands. I feel proud that I've done that and or aimed for that. I'll let others decide if I've done that. And I'm 48, and I'm thinking about what, what to do uh, in the decades ahead. It doesn't have to be surgery, but it will always take the lessons from surgery and the lessons from my cancer patients. Do you live by any
0: particular mantra, or is there anything you kind of say to yourself be it before surgery or generally mm. as like a as a life goal, and those things might change over time. I don't know, but is there any mantras you live by that other
1: people might get something from? Um. Well, not it, there's no there's no sort of prep before the event kind of thing. Um. But when I had dropped out of university and on my way back, I, um, part of the journey was through. South Central Los Angeles at Compton Community College. You know, that's where NWA is, the Williams sisters and Kendrick Lamar now. Um, Nipsey's from South LA, I think so. But – Yeah, Crenshaw. Yeah, that's by USC. Um, So on my my journey back, there was an English teacher there. And uh, he just, you know, uh, he just wrote one thing. He just wrote something that's been – been my mantra from that age gosh that was 20s is i know it was, it was oh so, so beautiful i know you'll do well but i hope you do good and i thought that's it that's it i want both hmm. if i can only have one i just want to do good because it changes your identity you know i, I don't know how old you are but Um, because it changes your identity, what you choose to do. If you, if you don't like the man you are, then put yourself to purpose and maybe you'll like the man you become, Hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's what I've tried to do. I've failed many times, man.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But you learn with each one. I wonder, Rahul, like something that I think about quite often. And, and apologies, by the way, I'm trying to respect your time. I've already gone over what I said. No, so no, no, I'm a good man. Just good. Like it the way you
1: like. It's great. Yeah. I'm enjoying okay. it. I don't, you know. Okay. I don't good. live on a calendar. Okay. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I often think,
0: can we truly change or are we sort of governed by our conditioning
1: from our youth and the people we spend our time with? The, the, answer, the answer, answer is simple. We can truly change. I can say that with more confidence than than anything is possible. Hmm. But we can truly change. And so the answer, I think, has to come from our understanding of the design inside of our skulls. Um, the cellular biology. I don't mean like, well, you know, you can change. Eat a blueberry. Focus on this. Look at the I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that I personally struggle with. But when you come to understand the processes going on in your brain and mind, it's liberating to know that if that can happen at the flesh and at the flesh under a microscope, then it can happen in our lives and our behavior and our mind. So you can take a, a healthy cell. Cells are the Lego blocks that make up flesh. Like if you see tissue, you see liver or you see brain, You put it under a microscope. It looks like tiles, you know, the liver looks like tiles, but the brain looks like a garden, long stream, like jellyfish. I mean, it's just exquisite. Um, everything is of different shape in the way they connect it's 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 not there's nothing rectangular about it but, uh, but liver and muscle is just like block 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 so when you see that the structure is very dynamic it it liberates you and it's constantly changing thoughts that the garden of your mind creates the thoughts that your brain create can actually come back and change the brain itself so flesh and it's Magical creation, the mind, white flesh, the brain, and the magical creation, the mind—they they play with each other, they dance with each other. So the you have thoughts, but you can turn your attention inward and actually change the flesh from which those thoughts arise. Mm. It's it's flesh and something greater, always in a reciprocal relationship. So change isn't can we change? I mean, the degree uh, you might ask that question, but it is a completely dynamic system. I mean, just, just to take you through a global, global sort of scape. you know, you're born with these neurons that don't have branches and then the ones you engage, you start creating branches with, and then you go through teenage years and electricities like Aurora Borealis and you get older and some of the garden, garden shrinks, but you've got, you've got other areas that have created habits to get you to work and get you home. And then later on, some of your thoughts might wig out and, you know, you know, they might glitch out and you're, you have dementia, but you have other capacities. It's a very dynamic thing. We know our kids can change from not walking to walking. We know adolescents can change from, uh, you know, not being mature enough to be trusted with some responsibilities, I guess, to being mature enough. That doesn't it, you have two great examples that the mind and brain always change. And to not to let up from age twenty five to seventy five, so my answer to that is, we can always change. The change you want might be harder if you're pursuing something I'm not, and the experiences you have will make it harder or easier. But that's where you tie into the stable environment and physical activity and, and, and nurturing environments that leave you leave you the most uh, modifiable version of yourself possible. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so how can we really change, like understanding that garden
0: that you explained, mm-hmm. like the brain is like a garden and maybe this is a good time to talk about, or, or maybe not, but proprioception, introspection, which you spoke about in your book. Mm-hmm. And that just jumped out at me. And then I added a third word on the end of that, which is manifestation, which I think mm-hmm. is maybe that they're all tied together, but how can we, if, if people listening, they're thinking I'm trying to change my circumstances to understand
1: the way the brain works in order to do that. Like, what can we actually do? Okay. Um, so on this book, takeaways are hard, but I like that question. You know, I mean, I'm I'm trying to leave people with optimism and complexity. So if you're talking about changing your perspective or changing your behavior, I mean, those are different. But let's take changing your behavior. Um, so the first step is to be able to turn your attention inward. Okay, so... Now some people have said, well, if, if you do too much of that, that can be like having depression with rumination. no, but there must be time in the day to sit and think about the events of the day as well as your reactions to those events and give yourself that 15 minutes whenever it is on a bike listening to music, I'm not saying it's got to have it's got to be in a yoga mat in Malibu, no, quite the opposite. it's it's the diligence within w- with which you turn your attention inward. You know, it's am I really thinking about this? How did this day go? How did this behavior go? How did this go? How did this make me feel? I think we're so tuned into that we're sensory people, sound, smells, but we're also introspective people that you have to sort of look and see how did I register all of that? Okay. So the change first begins with realizing that we have this amazing ability to look inward. And that's been written about for thousands of years. That's not fancy. And then then there's this concept of emotional regulation. So most of the changes I know people are trying to make is about being too reactive, not reacting appropriately, whether that's... Kicking the go- game-winning, you know, goal, or in surgery, or with a lover, or with an employer, you know, there's all these things, and so in that garden, um, the emotional brain, um, lots of pieces that like, you know, dogs have and puppies have and animals have. I mean, they, those are the deeper structures. You might have heard of them as limbic structures or the thalamus, hippocampus, amygdala, these sort of things. They're they're, they're not in the front here. They're, they're deeper set, um, you know, deep to your eyes, you know, up through your nose kind of locations, that they come primed in some ways, and they, those thermostats are set, and we react to things. That's life. But what happened was that the frontal lobes, the two in the front, they blossomed on top of it like a mushroom and pushed our foreheads forward over thousands of years, and that that garden and the emotional brain, the modern thinking cognitive brain and the emotional brain, they have branches that overlap. They're not separate. It's not like little Venn diagram of stuff. No, they're, they're intermeshed. And in some ways, they are partners, and in some ways, they're at war. And that's what the challenge to change is, to, to recognize that the emotional brain Leans a little reactive. It runs loose. It's wild, you know. It's it's reactive. That's what helped you back away from the edge of the cliff. That's what helped you uh, jump away when you saw a snake. Right, quick, reactive it was an advantage. An advantage. But then the frontal lobe comes in, and now we're living in a world where we don't have as many cliffs, and we don't have snakes and predators. Yet we're still. We can't neglect that reactive emotional side of ourselves, but it becomes a barrier to change. And so the frontal lobe has to take time and look inward and say, I don't have to have that reaction. I don't have to have those feelings. Did those feelings earn a place in my life? And so there's constant inner inner dialogue and and connection you need to have. And will people say, "Well, well, is that possible? Well, It is possible because the second, if you see a plastic snake, you jump once and then you see the plastic snake again you say, wait a second, that's not a real snake. You thought down your emotional reactive self. You changed. When you're chased by somebody, that adrenaline makes you flee or fight uh, or just brace. But when you see somebody with an ax in a movie, you realize the context, you don't just come running out of the movie theater, right? So that's frontal lobe working to tamp down the emotional lobe. That's frontal lobe creating behavioral change. So those are two simple examples. But if you can tell yourself not to be fearful, you can also teach yourself not to be reactive under certain conditions. Mm. I think that's the power of being able to change our behavior, that the ability exists inside of us. Mm.
0: Excuse me. That's unbelievable. People are going to take so much away because we talk about – Practices, meditation, you know, Mm -hmm. it could could be yoga in Malibu. (laughs) These, these times and periods that we need for introspection. A lot of the time we need trauma or we need things in our life that. that But the
1: thing about yoga in Malibu is it's not the place or the environment. It's what you're thinking. And you can have that inward directed emotion and thought happen in a prison cell where you don't belong there. You've been there, um, you know, Without a, for a crime you didn't commit? Like, what is the transformation that people in prison go through when they're there for 20 years? How do they find peace? How do they find their mindfulness and creativity, I mean, and clarity? So there's that dimension. There are people who are on a subway and have a, a, a reflective moment. There are people who are on a yoga mat in Malibu and may or may not have that moment. But what I want people to know is it's, it's not something you have to pay for. You know, you, originally it was done with somebody who left wealth um, and sat under a tree. So that introspection, that mind work, that how did the day go? If you're paying for it, be careful. If somebody's there's no shortcut for it. It's It's that energy that you have to turn into yourself. And if certain things facilitate it, fair. If you like looking at trees or you like looking at the ocean, but where I live, the There is the industry manipulates people by charging them for things that are meant to be free. They're your thoughts. Mm. And so that inward direction to change your behavior, to really let emotions earn a place in your mind. That's the ecosystem. That's the garden inside your skull. If you find ways in that, that, that helps you that. um, And if Malibu does that or the beach does that, that's great, but there's no shortcut. Because somebody in prison might be having that, that, that moment, but somebody who's not incarc- incarcerated at the beach may not be. Mm-hmm. So it's not, a, it's not a certain out for a look or a place. Uh, it's, it's actually what's going on in your inner life and inside your skull. I think That's a very important point because I live in Los Angeles and I, often we see people who come in, cancer patients as well, that have been manipulated by the industry. That if you do these things, these are anti-inflammatory or these are this. And um, the ones that are misguided are always the ones with the money to spend. And there you can see the unfair competition taking advantage of people. So that's kind of a side rift. But the point is, no, there's no shortcut to that work. And there's no, there's no, it's never too late for that work. And there's no location where that, that work is more likely to happen. It's really just that stuff inside your head that nobody knows about. But that's so, so
0: crucial, I think, for people to really grasp that. I think in the modern day, we've lost so many of those opportunities for us to have some introspection, whether that's... Well, I think it's largely because we have phones, right? We have you know cell phones or mobiles, as we call them over here. Like, that moment when you're standing in the queue for lunch or you're on transport or whatever it is and you're just sat with your thoughts, we don't have that anymore because we're constantly distracted by something else. So that's
1: one. But it, it, the... the You know, the origin and the solutions aren't easy. Listen, the mental health issues are going through the roof and we've learned more about the brain than any other time in our lives. So there's this disconnect. We're like becoming tremendous. We have tremendous knowledge about how the brain works. Yet people's minds are less healthy. That's the conundrum. That's the challenge here. And that's why I try to get away from hardwired or neuroscience shows or this Mm. part, you know, lights up. It just doesn't capture the complexity of what we're seeing in people. So those shortcuts don't exist. But real change, behavioral change, psychological change can happen if you start to see your brain as a garden that is a dynamic system with chemicals and electricity and unlimited potential and possibility. It's not easy, but it's there. And if you wonder in your dark moments how to do it, just remember the example that many cancer patients have.
0: Hmm. Hmm. What can listeners do to have better
1: brain health? Well, that was the, you know, the first book we really touched on that. And I'll I'll give that to you that I can give you as a list. You know, you asked uh, about Hmm. mental health. There's no list, but brain health, you're talking about the architecture and the substance of the brain brain health. Is, is easier to, to give direct advice about. Mental health, they're linked, is your own personal journey. So brain health, first of all, it's flesh. It's white flesh despite getting 20% of your blood flow, which is just fascinating. We don't have an explanation. The key is it's flesh and needs to be irrigated. So keeping your heart arteries open, we've heard about that. Those same arteries are in your brain. So you got to keep the vessels open. So that flesh is irrigated. That means whatever you want to do, take your cholesterol pills, don't clog the arteries of your brain because swaths of brain flesh will, will, uh, will wither. So that's important. Heart health, brain health, they're all linked. It's, it's vascular health is what we're talking about. The other thing is, um, those that garden, they, it shoots electricity and chemicals, right? It's like a a garden, an aquarium filled with electrical eels and jellyfish and stuff like that. And that electricity, as it ricochets around, relies on a certain fat for insulation, much like our coverings of wires. And that's from fatty fish. Hmm. So omega-3. There's actually an there's a purpose for it. It's not just eat this, eat granola. I mean, I get that. But I think people make change when they understand. So omega-3 is a certain type of fat, the good fat helps protect the insulations of the electrical connections in that garden of your mind. So that comes from fatty fish, or if you're vegan, there's other ways to get around it. Um, so that, that's another one. And then the third one is, is that it's a thinking flesh. It's thinking flesh, right? If, if you want to, how, if you, you know, you ask me how do, how do I like improve my ability to run? Well, if you ask Usain Bolt, he said, just run more. <laughs> Hmm. run harder. You you wouldn't doubt that. Well, your brain is thinking flesh. Live more, learn more. Turn your attention inward. You can't just you can't just sit, you know, you can't just run and eat well and not think because your brain when those corners of its mind are not relied upon because you're not challenging yourself with a new language or a new skill or a new way home, it, it's not it it's the process of learning even if you fail that really activates those deeper corners of that brain hmm. so you got to keep it fresh you get got to keep it popping you got to get out there and live your life if you get stagnant the brain will rev down because it's it gets 20% of the blood flow it doesn't want to waste calories it's an energy hog it's a glutton so you know you got to keep the arteries open you got to have a diet you know if you know being vegetarian, uh, with supplementing with some some foods that offer you omega-3s. And then you gotta, you know, you gotta put that brain to use. You gotta learn, you gotta sing, you gotta dance, you gotta get out of your comfort zone, you know. Otherwise, it, it will close shop on some of those, those areas that you aren't using. So you see that in people as as they age, it's the same advice. <laughs> same advice for teenagers as it is for eight-year-olds. Gotta get vertical, keep those arteries open, keep popping, keep learning new stuff. Dietary changes, if they do that from fifty to eighty, they have a lot less dementia than if they don't, so that's the last you know not the last, but another important thing it's glacial. those are changes you make in your life to keep that that amazing structure um, you know at peak performance hmm. super so keep moving,
0: eat well, and the third one stay smart. engaged, stay S- smart, yeah. student, remain the student, yeah, forever yeah. That's so good. I have two more questions and I yeah, promise yeah. Then I'll give you back your day. Um, the first one is obviously with everything you've experienced, you, you mentioned earlier about the number of patients of yours who have died and uh, everyone is eventually going to die, but not many of us actually consider our death. You know, mm. I, I read a lot about Stoics and that's the first time I started mm. the, the Stoic philosophy. And I started to consider like, you know, we actually, all of us die. And some, some of us, that is the underlying fear in all of us is that we haven't given enough conscious thought to that. Mm. What would your advice be? I'm because I'm assuming you have a very good relationship with the idea of death. So, what would your
1: advice be for people around yeah. understanding death? I, I don't know if I have a good relationship with death because I haven't seen it in front of me. Hmm. Uh, I have seen many other people deal with it, and again, like what we talked about from before, I don't know. You know, I don't know what I don't know what how I'll do at that time. I am coming in armed with some resilience. We'll see what I show in those moments. But uh, um, I think Kafka, you know, they, I don't think he was being facetious. He said, what's the meaning of life? And he's just, I think there's a quote. I, I might be wrong. I mean, I can't remember because I just, I pour a lot of different things in my mind, you know. Yeah. But he said, the meaning of life is that it ends. And um, that's the cancer patients have shown me. They do live differently when that finish line comes into view. Hmm. even those where they end up getting cured of cancer and they have a curable type of cancer, not necessarily the ones I take care of who here in that C word, they're different afterwards. I had a patient constant worry or he's like, nah, he just completely, completely like certain, uh, mental health issues or personality traits went away. He's like, no man, I was diagnosed with cancer and I beat it or I'm working through it or whatever. um, and then there are others who, who realize that, that each day, you know, sort of lived optimally planning for the future, but living the day optimally. So they, a lot of them find a, a combination of a physical task and a thinking task mm-hmm. but a patient who's a bus driver. She just, she's, that's when I, that's when I'm at my best. I'm th- I'm thinking about cancer, I'm thinking about life, but I'm still driving the bus, LA bus driver. So people find their own way. Um But um you know, I think that's the meaning of life—is that it ends, and then that changes the way you you live the the days we have that we've mm. been afforded. Yeah, it's so good. Last one, I promise. Mm. So,
0: I thought I said I got so much out of reading your book, and I found it fascinating. Your experience as a as a child when it was it was a it was a plane crash right into a building mm-hmm. right right near where you were. Well, two planes overhead. Mm. Yeah. So. The question is, is what you do today, you know, both from a science point of view in the labs and what you do in, on the surgery table, is that your, is that your purpose? Is that your Dharma? Is that what you feel like you were meant to do while you were here? Or was it a cert- certain events and things that happened in your
1: life, which led you down this path to want to help people and and change the world? Well, that's, that's a good question. You know, I think I would not be, you know, it wouldn't be forthright if I didn't say, I'm not sure. Mm. So, of course, all those things have have shaped that garden in my mind. Um, but helping people and doing it in a competitive fashion, meaning doing something rigorous, highly technical, I think it's it's this concept of sublimation where again, it's a chemistry term where you could change from g- gas and different states. Um, gas, solid liquid, you could skip steps, you know, it comes from chemistry term, but in the psychological sense, it's taking pathological tendencies and putting them to use. So what, what I, what I found was, of course, all my experiences affected me, but Mr. Jett's quote, I know you'll do well, but I hope you do good. Was a, was a compass for me that things you choose to do will shape the man you become. But at the same time I had a certain intensity like athletes you know um, that I wanted to be good at something I wanted to compete and being a cancer surgeon lets me do all of those things in a in a in in a way that I feel good about myself and that I'm trying to help the world but I can also release uh, all those things inside me that I know if I had let them go into a different direction they might have been destructive mm-hmm. so steering that energy not Always changing it, but putting it to use—positive use—I think that's been my um, that's been my intention, and I'm trying to make it my um, my life journey. You know, the word is sublimation; it's a good one to look up. Taking mm. something, taking something in you that could be bad, and you know it could be, and harnessing that and putting it to good use. Hmm. This is
0: sublimation, sublimation.
1: Yeah, S U B L I M A T I O
0: N. Amazing. I mean, you've, you've quoted Snoop Dogg and, you know, we've had some great – I'm going to quote Harry Potter. I'm <laughs> <laughs> English. I have to. <laughs> it's when uh, um, he says that we, we all have both light and dark
1: inside yeah. of us.
0: It's which you choose to go with.
1: And um, that's, yeah, I, I, I didn't watch any of those. Don't get mad, UK. Hmm. Um, and also, we both – we all have that and it's contextual – there's a darkness in us that we may not know exists until we're faced with a certain adversity or decision or choice until we're tested. Um, and there's a light in us mm-hmm. that adversity can reveal as well. I've seen mm-hmm. both in my cancer patients.
0: It's funny. I was literally just reading the poem today. Yeah. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Yeah. That's perfect, man. We wrap it right there. Hmm. Powerful. Wow. It's been a, such an absolute pleasure. Honestly, I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm so sorry. I've taken so much of your time. I don't normally go that long, but, um, believe it or not, I still have millions of questions to ask you, but that's, that's been fun. unbelievable,
1: man. Thank you so yeah. much. No, it's a good um, vibe. Good jam. Good to hear about your baby, your life. You yeah. know, it's all love, man. We we take it positive direction. Yeah. Thank
0: you, mate. And, um, look for everyone listening, this is genuinely one of the best books I've ever ever read. And I don't say that lightly. Like I've probably done about 400 books in the last six, seven years. And this is one of the best books that I've read. Um, So I can't recommend it highly enough. The first one was a a bestseller over here, Sunday Times bestseller. Um, And I I wish you all the success with this one as well, mate. I'm sure it's going to be the same. So thanks again.
1: My pleasure. We'll catch up soon next year, maybe when I'm in
0: London in physical would love that would love that man yeah we um i do a lot of uh, live events you're welcome to any of them i'd love to have you come and speak or or just be a part of anything and yeah anything i can do to support what you're doing as well mate i'd love to It'd be a pleasure yeah it's good
1: man good vibe so all right until next time thanks all thank you so much
0: there it is guys thanks so much for joining me yet again and thanks so much to Rahul for two unbelievable episodes there was so much to unpack there that I'm not even going to attempt to wrap it up what I would love to do alternatively is put this question to you what landed with you in that episode more than anything I'd love to hear from you feel free to DM me on Instagram at markwitten underscore tf or feel free to share the episode in your social media platform of choice with a comment about the bit that landed most as mentioned the book is phenomenal and I can't recommend it enough and I hope to connect with Rahul when he's over in London sometime soon next week I'm speaking with an incredibly impressive individual and we'll be hearing life lessons from a nutritionist with Rhiannon Lambert there's so much information out there today a lot of it contradictory and I was desperate to find out what we should be eating today Rhiannon delivered that and so much more. So until then, I hope you have an unbelievable week and stay positive, stay motivated and take flight.